welcome to the OCR Underground Show. Each week, you get the latest research, training secrets of top coaches, and everything you need to crush your next obstacle course race and finish burpee-free. Here's your host, SGX coach, Mike Diebler. All right, this is SGX coach Mike Diebler, and welcome to episode 37 of the OCR Underground Show. Thank you for making this show part of your training resource. As usual, we're going to have another awesome episode for you. Uh, but first, I just wanted to make a quick announcement. Uh, Big Bear SoCal Race is just around the corner. may not seem like it, but we're a little over three months away. And I am actually looking for a couple beta testers. I'm, I want to take on 10 people to participate in a 90-day training program that I am releasing. And I'm only going to open it to 10 people. I want to keep it to a small group so I can really keep track of what everybody's doing. Uh, it's going to be a completely online based program. This is only open if you are doing the Big Bear, either Sprint or Beast. You could be doing either one. Uh, but yeah, so I'm looking for 10 people to get a complete training program, including your, your running program, your tactical skills, um, and your, your strength program, as well as a whole bunch of other stuff that I've put together uh, in a, an awesome 12-week progressive model for you. But if you're interested, you just have to apply to be considered one of our, our 10 beta testers. And you can just go to OCRunderground.com slash big dash bear. And again, I'll put those links in the show notes of this episode, episode which you can find at OCRunderground.com slash episode dash 37. Uh, before we get into the show, I wanted to share another quick tip of the week. And uh, I can't take credit for this one. This was actually from my wife after we ran our last race, which was the Boise Sprint. I know uh, last week I gave a recap about that race. Um, but one thing that she uh, kind of discovered, I guess, uh, I thought was a really neat tip and wanted to share it in case you might find it interesting. And it had to do with the bear crawl. And um, one thing, you know, and as we've traveled around and done all these Spartan races, definitely the terrain can be different, whether you're on the East Coast, West Coast, North, South, wherever you might be. And sometimes when you're doing that bear crawl, uh, you can run into all sorts of things. Could be like poison ivy, poison oak, thorns, rocks, mud, whatever it might be. And in Boise, we had, um, and I'm blanking on what they're called, I think it was the goat skulls or whatever those uh, devil's thorns um, were. And if you weren't careful, you just took one right into your palm and your knee or, or any other body part that might run across them. And they were a little painful. Um, and she had the idea there were also rocks all over the place. So she ended up grabbing two fairly big rocks, you know, like fist-sized rocks, and just put them in her hands. And then she actually crawled through the bear, bear crawl, holding those in her hands, and it actually prevented any anything from poking her in the hands, at least. Uh, so I thought that was a pretty neat tip, and I'm uh, definitely going to remember that one in case the terrain's a little rough. And you can just hold something in your hand, so at least you're not damaging anything, and then have your hands bleeding or hurting and then have to do uh, monkey bars or twister right after anything like that. So it might be a way to save your hands. So I just wanted to share that quick little tip of the week um, and definitely thank my wife for that one. Uh, getting on to this week's episode, uh, we, we have a long one. There's a lot of great info in this episode. Up first, we have SGX coach Brad Sims with Legacy Athletic Club, who was uh, recently on uh, our coach's interview, and we brought him back on to give us a race recap for the Goliathon event that happened just a couple weeks ago. And this is an East Coast-only event. I've heard about it before, never gotten to participate in it, and it sounded pretty awesome. So this is a, a little bit longer of a race recap, 
uh, because Brad actually walks us through all 12 of the obstacles that you see. And um, it sounds really interesting. I know it's one that I definitely want to try and make a trip to the East Coast and try it out. And if you're on the East Coast and haven't done this one, uh, I'm, again, I'll put the link to the race so you can learn more about the obstacles, how it, how it works, and uh, maybe sign up for one of the uh, next races coming up soon. In our research review, I'm going to talk about inspiratory muscle training, and I've talked about this on previous podcasts, but this is essentially training your uh, breathing muscles like your diaphragm, and you've probably heard of things like diaphragmatic breathing, uh, which is a great method to practice to help improve breathing patterns. This, this is a little bit different, though. This is almost like resistance training um, for your breathing, breathing muscles, so we talk about how this particular type of training can actually increase your uh, running capacity by 15%. Um, so we're going to talk all about that in this week's research review. And then finally, in our coaches interview, I have on uh, Michael Mullen with Integrative Fitness Training. And uh, I mentioned this in the interview, but I had him out here at my studio uh, earlier this year, and he put on just a, a fantastic workshop on, uh, we talked about a whole bunch of different things. It was a, a, a complete day packed of, of different training and rehab methods to help maximize performance. We talked a ton about uh, breathing and how breathing is such an overlooked aspect of training and really why you need to uh, consider it as an, a, a, a completely uh, priority in your training program. And um, we, we also talked about uh, posture and how probably most things you, th you think you know or know about posture is probably wrong and how some of the things you might be training may actually be making things worse. So we talk about uh, uh, better things that we can focus on with our posture and our positioning. Uh, more things on breathing, just on how to incorporate breathing patterns into your workouts. So when you're squatting, doing push-ups, pull-ups, um, we probably heard things like exhale with exertion and uh, that has its place, but there's also a lot of other breathing methods that you probably want to start practicing. So we talk all the different ways we can incorporate breathing into our exercises. And we get into um, better positioning and posture for pull-ups and monkey bars. And uh, again, check out the show notes. There's going to be some really cool videos on uh, some of these different movements and exercises and how you can uh, really improve some some positioning of your uh, pull-ups is a big one. We talk about it in the interview, but I just think a lot of people aren't even thinking about this one thing that we talk about. So uh, I'll put some videos in, in the show notes so you can see exactly what we're talking about there. Um, and then we finally get into running and how uh, different things with your running mechanics from, from breathing and from your arm swing and uh, a whole bunch of different uh, gait mechanics we get into. So uh, this was a, a just an informative interview and I know you guys are gonna love this one. Uh, and if you wanna geek out about breathing and, and how the body works, uh, you're definitely gonna wanna stay tuned for this. So uh, let's get into this week's episode. This is Coach Brad reporting with a race recap on an event known as Goliathon. Um, the event Goliathon is held in Mullica Hill, New Jersey. As far as I know, that's the only location it is held. It's on the Gloucester County Fairgrounds. <clears throat> and um, I wanted to give you my race recap, but um, first I want to start with some just general information about the event, you know, what it is, um, because it's not a Spartan race, it's, it's a little bit different. Um, Goliathon is uh, not a race. They call it, it's not a race, it's a mission. That's like their theme. Um, and the purpose is to raise money to bring clean water to Malawi. 
Um, throughout the course, which is about four miles long, there are two water stations, but there are no snack stations. Um, overall, very flat course. Um, my Garmin watch clocked 508 feet total ascent over a four mile distance and 531 feet total descent. So it averages out. It's really not that hilly at all. Um, the total time for me was two hours, 21 minutes. Um, now it was not a timed event, so you know I wasn't doing my absolute fastest, but nor am I the fastest runner. It is okay to skip obstacles, and the purpose, I guess the main focus of the race is there's a dozen obstacles, okay? What they do is you have three difficulty levels called G1, G2, and G3. A G1 level is worth one point, and you would get a specific colored silicone bracelet if you complete it. G2 is worth three points, and you get a different colored bracelet if you complete that. And the G3 is worth five points. So the maximum points you could get in a race would be 60. If you achieve 60 points, so full obstacle completion, um, because it's Goliathon, they give you the nickname David, and they have what they call the Wall of David. So they take your photograph as, a, as like basically an elite finisher. Um, you would get a free race entry. So your next race is free if you can, if you can achieve that. And you get an, a t-shirt that says, I am a David. Okay, so I said before there were a dozen obstacles. So the first obstacle that I encountered was a water carry. Basically, you have a metal bar about four feet wide. There are two, uh, I believe there were five-gallon water jugs hanging from ropes on either side of the bar. This kind of reminds me of uh, if you've ever lifted a, lifted a slosh pipe, like the giant PVC pipe that's filled with water. Uh, it's, you know, it's very uneven. It's, it's hard to hold. It's unstable. This is a bit like that. Um, but pretty much it's like doing... Um, a bucket carry in the race, only it's not on a hill, right? It's very flat, as I mentioned. The only stipulation is that the water jugs do not touch the ground as you carry them. Um, and one trick that we quickly learned for that is you can use the pipe that the ropes are attached to and sort of rotate it to roll the rope around it and lift the jugs a little bit higher off the ground. So that's not a problem. So that was the water carry. Second obstacle was called <laughs> Slippery Wall Monkey. <laughs> um, basically, this is a combination of aerial obstacles over muddy water. Um, all the, all the difficulty levels consisted of uh, pretty much a giant board with um, smaller pieces of wood as hand grips and foot grips uh, screwed into it. But the board itself is suspended from two ropes. So when you, when you step onto the board, it's like a vertical wall, right? But it's uh, obviously moving around and swaying. And most of the boards were arranged in sort of a Z formation. So you had to get from board to board. I, think, I believe there are about three boards. Then you had a series of rings, or in some cases, a rope. And then you had to transition from the rings or rope to another series that 
One of them looked like monkey bars, um, but they were kind of U-shaped bars, so they were suspended from above. So there's this giant frame overhead, and basically you just had to get across and land on... They, they, they give you these specific landing pads. It's, it's kind of like a wooden board um, surrounded by you know, dirt and straw. Some of them have an air horn, I think the G3 level. They put an air horn under the board, so when you land on it, you know, it sounds the air horn marking that you completed and you landed safely. So that was Slippery Wall Monkey. The third obstacle was called Sky Climb. Sky Climb is basically just a rope climb, and the object is to climb the rope, and you have to ring a metal bell that's a couple feet away from the rope at the top. Now, what made it tricky was the hardest level that I was able to accomplish, yay me, was they drape a 40-pound chain around your neck and shoulders. The chain, for safety reasons, is attached to a separate safety rope and a pulley system, which the judge who's watching you do the obstacle, they control it. So kind of like in rock climbing, where they would belay you, He's controlling the chain. So believe me, it doesn't help you get up the rope. You still have to be good at rope climb. But the chain, <laughs> obviously 40 extra pounds, that makes it quite, quite challenging. Uh, to make it more interesting, you can't touch the bell with your hands. When you get to the top, you've got to extend the chain slightly away from you to one side and tap the bell with the actual chain. Once you've done that, you're successful, you safely lower yourself down the rope, and your judge will take control of the chain, uh, lifting it off you and bringing it safely back to earth so you don't have to worry about climbing down with the chain. The fourth obstacle was Circus Maximus. Uh, again, a combination of stuff for the different difficulties, but essentially you're climbing a steel scaffold with boards that's about six or seven feet above the ground. You have to climb up onto the scaffold. You do a series of either ropes or rings across a gap that's about, I would say, four feet over the ground. And then you get to another platform from which point you swing across uh, like a muddy trench. And you have to swing across, do a rope swing, which uh, that was pretty fun. You, you got to land on a platform and then you were done with that. Um, I should mention that most of this was kind of in the New Jersey Pine Barrens, so between a lot of obstacles, you're just basically running through the woods. The fifth obstacle was called Ninja Killer. Ninja Killer consists of a series of those kind of 45-degree beveled steps, you know, that are, uh, they alternate each other, like, like at the beginning of American Ninja Warrior. So you had a series of ninja steps, then you had various types of stepping stones. Some were curved on the top, so a lot harder to balance on, and you could only land on them, not the ground. Then you had an obstacle where you, the G3, you would have to climb up a series of rings on a slight incline, and then grab a bar, and you had to lache from one bar across, it looked like about a four foot gap, to get to the other side, and then you climb down an angled pole, 
and you have to land in a specific place. Uh, after that, we had a lily pad hopper. So these were basically giant tires where they covered the, when I say giant, I'm talking like four or five feet across. I believe there were three or four. And again, three, they arranged three difficulty levels. The tires are floating in three or four foot deep muddy water. And basically because of the air in the tires, any weight on them that's not centered causes the tire to kind of heave to one side or the other very quickly. Uh, so you had to keep moving quickly to get across that. I failed that one. <laughs> that was a nice way to cool off though. After the lily pad hopper came rope cross. Basically all this is is a Tyrolean traverse. So just like Spartan race, it's, uh, it's a Tyrolean traverse, but this one definitely had three levels. And I will first of all mention that this Tyrolean Traverse is longer than any Spartan Tyrolean you've ever done. It's easily 20 feet further across. And it's across this big muddy pond. Uh, the G1 level on this was two ropes, one to stand on and one to hold onto above you so you could sort of walk across and guide with your hands. The second one was a typical Tyrolean, nothing special, but just very long and really wore out your grip strength. The third level was the same length, but after you got to a certain point, there were what looked like two foot wide broomsticks that looked like they were woven through the middle of the rope. So as the rope twists and turns, these broomsticks twist and you've got to find a way around them without letting go of the rope. And then at one point they had a giant PVC pipe, which obviously spins around the rope. And you have to figure out how to move that up or down for you to get around it to continue your traverse. Uh, the funniest thing about this obstacle was someone with a sick sense of humor had decorated a remote control boat um, as an alligator head with these big scary red eyes and they would have it cruising around the pond. <laughs> I assume, I assume they had it cruising around the pond at some point. By the time I got there, <laughs> it was just sort of floating in place staring at people. But it was, it was just funny because uh, it was a way to alleviate the stress of the race, I guess. I wasn't expecting it. Uh, the eighth obstacle was called Balancing Act. Balancing Act is a series of kind of zigzagging wooden boards that you have to cross, I don't know, about a 15-foot gap, again, over muddy water. What made it interesting was the, the boards that you have to step on both go incline and decline. They're supported by kind of like four-sided pyramid bases. The G3 version, for, for example, imagine stepping on a, a two by four, but of course on the thin side, making it very challenging. And the thin side is cut into smooth kind of undulating waves. So, you know, um, it, again, it's, an, it's a basically an upward incline, but there's also smooth waves going up. 
Uh, you had to get across that. Then a couple of them you had to go over an obstacle that looked like it was blocking your balance beam. So you had to figure a way around the side to get around that. Then you had the half dome. Half dome consists of a vertical wall. The G3 consisted of a pegboard climb. There were absolutely no footholds. So if you're really good at pegboard climb, you can get up to the top. I had estimated it was about nine feet high. And there's kind of a sharpish corner. So you have to pull yourself up onto the top where it's flat. But then on the other side of the obstacle, it is a sharp, um, I'm sorry, not a sharp, a smooth slope over the top, kind of like a camelback. Uh, that's the only way I could describe it. And there is a, a rope that you have to walk down the slope backwards, holding onto the rope, and then you have to hop about a foot or two away from the wall to land on the platform. Then we had one called the hangman. You climb up another scaffold and you're standing on a platform and there's an overhead scaffold as well. And there is about a, I think there were two six foot long boards and there's like three vertical ropes through each of the two boards, if that makes sense. So basically, you that was pretty simple. You just hold on to the vertical ropes. You walk carefully down the boards. Obviously, they wobble a bit. They swing as you, uh, as you move your weight across. You step across a very small gap, get to the second board, and continue down. At the bottom of that board, there was basically a telephone pole about a foot foot and a half off the ground, I would, I would estimate. Someone brings you uh, a rope that has this big ball, almost like big enough that you could sit on it. I guess it was about 14 inches across, like a plastic ball. So you can either try to stand on the ball or you can sit on it. And it was almost like a zip line, except you're hanging on a rope on a zip line. So you go across about a six foot space on the rope Again, this is slightly downhill. Then you get to a series of monkey bars. Um, well, one was monkey bars. One was made of wood pallets. So required a different grip. And then you just go across the monkey bar type thing, and then you're done with that one. Then you run a little bit further through the woods. You come to an obstacle that we all know to be the overwall, a basic wall climb. This one, you had three attempts there was a six foot wall, eight foot wall, and a 10 foot wall. And those marked the difficulty levels. So you had three attempts. And if you did not make it in three, then you don't get a bracelet. So you would just go on, skip it and go on to the next. Uh, so then going on to the last obstacle was called over the moon, but it's similar to the, the American Ninja Warrior wall. It, it was, a, there was, there, I'm sorry, there were three heights. So you had a nice running start and you basically run up the wall, grab the ledge, and pull yourself up to the top. One of them had a rope. I think that was the G1. Um, I don't remember the height on the G1, though. But G2 was the one I did. There's no rope, but you run up, and it's about 12 feet high. And then the G3, also no rope, but it was, I believe, 15 feet high. So you've got to really get a good 
get some good speed up there, run up the top, pull yourself up the ledge. And then the last little bit, it was connected to that. It's not really an obstacle, but you just get to go down one last really big water slide, and that kind of cleans you off for the end of the race. So that was it. Uh, those are all the 12 obstacles overall. Um, because of the amount of Ninja Warrior type uh, grip strength that was required, the technicality of having to do balance and strength. Uh, again, this is a points-based race. It's not time-based. So if you really like to work on your Ninja Warrior skills, but you're strong, you're good at things like rope climb, uh, monkey bar traverse, ring traverse, rope traverse, I would definitely, definitely recommend this race. It, it was not an easy race. And uh, it, again, it's for a good cause, so all the more reason to help out. Again, the upcoming Goliathon, I believe, is Goliathon 8, and that is October 21st of this year in the town of Mullica Hill, New Jersey. I hope you enjoyed the recap, and uh, we'll see you out on the courses. All right, it's time for our research review. And since this uh, interview that we're going to be doing in this episode is going to be heavily talking about breathing, I thought it only fitting that we discuss a breathing study. Um, this is from the Journal of Sports Science in 2011. And what they wanted to look at here was inspiratory muscle training. And this is essentially training the muscles that you use to breathe in, one being like your diaphragm. And they'll do this using resisted breathing devices. So kind of put a mouthpiece on and you'll breathe through this device and it actually restricts the air to a certain percent and makes those muscles work a little bit harder. So think of it just like strength training, um, but you're using it uh, through your breath to strengthen those breathing muscles. And um, I've talked about this on the podcast before, and there's actually quite a bit of research on this type of training. So I think it's uh, valuable that we bring it up because it's a simple thing you can do to significantly increase your, your performance, especially your running performance. And that's actually what they did in this study was look at it in runners, and they looked at their... Uh, time and distance to exhaustion. So basically running as hard as they could for as long as they could until they just gave up. And if you think if you're running an all-out effort or an all-out sprint, once you get a, a few seconds into that sprint, your respiratory muscles are on overdrive because you're trying to breathe so much to get that much-needed oxygen in. And that can actually be a limiting factor in your performances. Those muscles are just getting fatigued and can't, uh, can't breathe fast enough or deep enough to supply the oxygen that your body needs. So what they did in the study was uh, they took two groups and one group, they had them use a breathing device. And in the show notes for this episode, I'll, I'll show you, uh, I'll, I'll put a link to what these devices look like. They are kind of pricey. They're several hundred dollars. Um, uh, could be a, bit, a big invest or a good investment if, if you know, you're an elite athlete, but um, I'll give you some tips on what you can do at a fraction of the cost uh, after we talk about this study. And uh, so they had them breathe uh, daily. They would take, uh, they would do one set of 30 breaths and they would do uh, 50% of resisted air. So that's the amount of resistance that they would do. Um, and then the control group that they compared it to uh, just had 15% resistance, which in previous study has shown uh, that small of a resistance just isn't enough to really do do too much. So they compared 50% to 15%. And they did this for four weeks. 
And then they actually repeated the study for another four weeks, but now uh, not only was the group doing the daily breaths or resisted breathing, they also had them do it with a warm-up. So before they would do their running workouts, they would actually do two sets of 30 breaths at a 40% resistance. Um, and the, res the uh, results of the study were pretty interesting. So in the control group that just had minor resistance, they actually did see an improvement of five to, about 5 to 7%. In, um, in that running performance, which is still something. So that's interesting, even just a small amount of resistance did do something there. Uh, but the interesting thing was the group that did the higher uh, resisted breathing, they actually saw a 12% increase, which is very substantial. And when they combined the daily resisted breathing to the warmups, they actually saw a 15% increase. So a really good return for your investment there. If you combine daily inspiratory muscle training with uh, just a, a few minutes of uh, a couple of resisted breaths before your workout uh, to get the most bang for your buck there. And um, like I said, yes, you could go out and buy uh, this equipment and do your resisted breathing that way, but you can find ways to just uh, resist your own breathing. And honestly, you can do it just by um, pursing your lips and resisting the air that comes in or or even using straws may be effective. So uh, getting different uh, diameter straws and breathing in through the straw to help uh, or to make it harder to get the air in so you have some resistance there and uh, possibly even with training masks. So there's there's some mixed results with how well uh, the altitude masks actually uh, resist the air coming in, but some some might actually do it enough where you get this resisted breathing effect there. Um, and just remember, we're not talking about the same effects of altitude training. So this isn't doing anything uh, physiologically like you would be doing at altitude. It's just improving the muscles that control your breathing, which is going to help uh, respiratory respiration during your running performance, which uh, if you control that, it's going to help you last for longer and at higher intensity. So pretty cool things and just a simple thing you can add to your program. This is our Coach's Corner where I am, I'm always excited to have our guests on here, but I am especially excited today. Uh, our guest actually flew out from the East Coast to my studio in San Diego after a mutual friend basically told me I had to get this person out here to talk about a, a lot of different topics in, in training and uh, a lot of integrating both physical therapy and fitness. And I have to say, every time I go to a workshop, I'm always looking for at least one or two aha moments that I can apply right away or maybe just kind of a, a paradigm shift where I'm going to change how I'm training myself and my clients. And I have to say, I walked away with more than a handful of those. So I'm really excited to have our guest on. We have uh, Mike Mullen from Integ Integrated Rehab Training. How are you doing today, Michael? I'm great. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate you having me on the show. Oh, my pleasure. And uh, I, I'm going to try and squeeze as much information out of you as I can in the next 20 to 30 minutes. So if it's <laughs> all right with you, I'd love to just jump right into this. And Yeah, sounds great. One one really big thing we, we talked about when you were out here was uh, breathing. And it, it's such an overlooked topic in, in fitness and rehab. And it's something that everybody can easily incorporate into their, their training and their life. But I wanted you to kind of touch on why this is such an overlooked thing and, and how it is so important to, to start incorporating. Absolutely, Mike. Um, I started getting interested in trying to understand the role that 
breathing or breath work or ventilation or respiration, whatever word people want to call it, and they all have kind of different meanings to it. But the nuances are subtle. Some are related to gas exchange and some are related to the mechanics of breathing. But I became intrigued when I was doing work in the late 90s and the early 2000s with trying to cue people about breathing when I'm doing different types of exercises with them. I've been an outpatient, you know, the rehabilitation world for a number of years and doing, you know, course stabilization exercises, doing activities that try to work on building control and strength through certain musculature. There'd be times where people would say, well, how do I breathe during this? And I don't know that I really had a, a real answer for them. I wasn't really aware of how to cue them with that. I started playing around with kind of exhale with effort. I started playing around with some of the stuff that some of the other professionals were doing at that stage, but there just there wasn't a lot of information out there other than some of the stuff that Buteyko and some of the yoga work and things like that that had been incorporated. Almost every person I see has some degree of breathing imbalance, and it's normal because that's the way that our body adapts to the, to the ability to be able to basically survive on this planet and to be able to go about our daily lives without thinking about our breath. Our breath is something that's obviously automatic. It's controlled by our deep brain processes, and it's something that's always going to be there as long as we're able to be able to be alive on this planet. That being said, it's one of the very, very few things that we also have voluntary control over. And it's when our automatic, that deep brain, is going through just survival mode, saying just get the air in and get the air out as we try to go through our daytimes that sometimes we start to develop bad habits, bad positions, and therefore bad breathing patterns. Over the course of times, it becomes a new norm. So we become a little bit more chesty with our breathing, meaning we have a tendency to take more into our front chest. We have a tendency to be a little bit more shallow in our breathing meaning we'll have a tendency to be a little bit more um, uh, uh, shallow in our ability to take the proper amount of air in. Over the course of time, muscles will shorten. The trunk and the rib cage and the thorax will begin to kind of change its shape a little bit to adapt because our body's not taking the proper airflow into the proper places. Then we begin to compensate that much further on top of it as a result of being able to try and just, again, go through the automatic process of breathing for survival. What I found with breath work is that it does a few different things. One, it allows options. I want to create options for people to be able to use it for optimal breathing exchange, I'm sorry, optimal breathing mechanics to optimize gas exchange. Two, to be able to use it as a tool for relaxation, for tone reduction of muscles that are overactive, to help to improve position and our bodies to be able, a body's ability to be able to move our trunk our thorax, meaning our upper, our, our upper rib cage area, our pelvis, and therefore be able to optimally position our spine and the rest of our body. And I also want to be able to do it to be able to empower them for training purposes. I think it's pretty clear that people recognize when you're doing exercise, if you're doing more um, aerobic exercise that's more uh, consistent and a little bit more repetitious, you're going to develop a certain breathing pattern, a certain breathing rate. If you're doing more exertive stuff that requires lifting heavier weights, well, your breathing strategy will have to change a little bit. As you start doing things that are that much more exertive, let's say for some of the population that you're listening to this show, where you're really hauling up, pulling up ropes and you're climbing walls and you're doing things that require a lot of effort, well, your breathing strategy is going to have to change even that much more. So to be able to have all of these options available to you to be able to tap into depending upon the task at hand is what I want to be able to offer people. That's why it's so important. Awesome. And you, you just opened up a, uh, a ton of questions for me to ask you, but I, I want to start with that last point and all the different strategies there, because I think most people are probably familiar with 
kind of uh, incorporating breath work as you know you exhale with exertion and you know there uh, uh, there's a time and place for that but that's not the only strategy so uh, maybe we could touch on just a couple different strategies that maybe you do want to do that or maybe you don't want to do that and take a, a different strategy based on what you might be doing absolutely so when doing something that's um so i'll clarify the exhale piece so number one what I work on with people is their ability to be able to get a more balanced breath, not only from an inhalation and an exhalation, but also from, a, a frankly, a right and a left side of the body piece. I do find that most people do have some degree of asymmetrical balance in their body's ability to be able to get proper airflow into both lungs and therefore both chest walls, if you would. Mm-hmm. So I spend time really trying to work on optimizing the way their body is able to use the right and their left side more evenly. That being said, once you start to be able to establish that piece, then I also want to make sure they have the ability to be able to get proper inhalation, and that I get through their ability to be able to get more optimal exhalation. Many people I see have a tendency to have too much air in as a general rule, and therefore the musculature, the diaphragm, the position of the rib cage now has changed its position to a more what we call inhaled state or a less optimal breathing exchange state. So if I have someone just in that state trying to just exhale when they do something exertive, their body still does not know how to have proper movement of the abdominals and the diaphragm and the pelvic floor that are our optimal breathing muscles in order to be able to have it happen as effectively as possible. So what I really try to work on with some situations is this. If I have someone doing something that's more repetitious, let's say aerobic related, they're doing running, they're on an elliptical, they're doing something that's more uh, consistent, cycling, things like that, then I'll have them focus on trying to take a little bit more airflow that focuses a little bit more on exhalation. So I'll even talk to my runners, I'll say, okay, uh, I wanna have you inhale on two strides, exhale on three. Okay, when you're on the elliptical, I wanna have you think about it, you're pedaling around, so go ahead and pedal on two strides, inhale, three strides, exhale. Same type of thing when they're cycling, things like that, that just allow their body to be able to get a little bit more of an exhaled uh, mechanics in place so that their body then can optimize the inhalation to expose new areas to get that more balance in place. I don't have them do that the whole time, but I just use it as kind of like a a retraining, a resetting, kind of a, a reformatting of that breathing sequence to keep it more consistent. As they do stuff that's more exertive, if they're starting to kind of lift heavier, they have to exert, like you did, like we mentioned with some of the, the 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 races, the Spartan races that a lot of your listeners will be doing. Well, there will be more of an exhaled position that I want them doing, but they can't exhale the whole time. They have to learn how to then be able to, as they're pulling, climbing, crawling, they have to be able to then learn how to maintain a good position of their rib cage and then be able to take a nice air in to be able to allow that expansion to occur, hopefully across that whole front and back and sides as best as possible and not allow them to get back into that really heightened chesty breathing state, which causes their backs to extend too much, tightens their neck muscles up too much and all of the other things that go along with that. Perfect, and I, and I definitely want to get into uh, some of those things there when we uh, talk a little bit about incorporating uh, breathing with posture and, and different movements. Um, but one thing I, and I, I'm, I think we did this at the workshop when you were here, but it's something that I try and play around with, with myself and with clients is, you know, sometimes we get stuck on, on reps and, and time and things like that, but uh, I found it really helpful to just focus on, you know, and maybe it's just becoming aware of your breath, 
but instead of, hey, I'm going to do this exercise for this many reps, um, or maybe like a plank holder or an isometric exercise like that, I'm going to do it for this many breaths. And it's helped with clients who tend to hold their breath a little bit, or Correct. they're just, you know, stuck in that deep inhalation with very little exhalation, where now they understand that, hey, I have to get all of this air out. So I just want to get your thoughts on that, on incorporating breath work that way, just to help people at least be aware of it. Of course. No, great, great, great input. So uh, a couple clarifications. Number one, uh, our body has the voluntary physical capacity to be able to inhale to the maximal amount. Okay. Maximal inspiratory volume, if you would. However, we are physically unable to clear out all of our air. So I'm not saying for people to go to try and do it. I'm not saying don't try to get out as much as you possibly can, you know, voluntarily. But I just want to be clear. I don't want people to continue to work hard to try and feel like they're, quote, unquote, getting all their air out. There will be residual volume inside the, you know, inside the esophagus and the trachea, inside the lungs, things like that. So when I talk to people about getting, quote, unquote, all the air out, I just want them to really work on trying to just blow and blow and blow and blow more than they typically would. Mm-hmm. To your point related to from the exercise perspective, the reason I think it's so important is twofold. One, I want to make sure that they can maintain the position that I've put them in for an exercise and be able to inhale and exhale in that position. Let's say like a plank or a side plank or or something that's requiring a little bit more of a hold position. I want to see that they don't have to change their body's position, that they're, they don't have to rise, let their chest rise and fall. They can maintain that good opening of the rib cage circumferentially around evenly as they inhale and they exhale. Number two, that allows their diaphragm and their pelvic floor muscles, if you want to call it the top and the bottom of the core, to be able to maintain their role as breathing muscles their ability to be able to maintain that pressure and gas exchange that your body's looking for during the breathing cycle to take place so that you can then have good abdominal activity. You can then have good scapular muscle activity. So you can have all the muscles that are designed to hold and maintain control of the body's position, do their job so that you don't have a pelvic floor working too much, trying to hold you in place. You don't have a diaphragm holding static pulling on your rib cage, trying to maintain postural control of your body, it's able to do its job as a breathing muscle at the same time. So for example, like with a squat, going back to your last question, when I start squatting with people or, or split squatting or lunging or stuff like that, as I'm starting training with them, I'll have them exhale on the way down and up on both the descent and ascent. So they learn to be able to kind of get that optimal exhalation and airflow and be able to get those nice abdominals in a nice engaged position and that deep pelvic muscles in a good position for when they're going down and then uh, transitioning back into the ascent motion. As they get better control, as they start lifting a little bit heavier and they are able to kind of master that control of that position, I actually start working on inhaling them on the way down and exhaling them on the way up. As long as they continue to maintain that good position, again, of the rib cage, the thorax, and that pelvis as they're going into that mechanics. If I see as they're lowering down or the weight increases as they're inhaling on the way down, that they start to extend too much, they start to lose that good position of the pelvis or the rib cage that I'd like, then I might revert them back to a little bit more of that exhalation down and up mechanics. As people start getting into heavy, heavy stuff, that's where there will be some 
I guess I'll just say dialogue or debate about what's best. Do you really want to kind of Valsalva them fully? Do you want to kind of create that intradominal pressure with a little bit more of a real exertive pressure to be able to maintain that control across the front? And there are varying thoughts and, and uh, methodologies on that. And I think that they're all valid as long as, in my mind, you're able to maintain the principles of good positional control throughout. Yeah, and I think that makes perfect sense. And um, if, if anything, a good takeaway is that we probably should play around with some of these different breathing mechanics. Uh, mechanics. I, re I remember doing that squat drill, and I remember the first time you had us do it, it's, it's uncomfortable because it's not really what you're used to doing. Um, but uh, with a lot of this breathing, now, now that I'm aware of it, when I watch clients, that's kind of the first cue that things might be falling apart. And that could be, you know, could be a squat, but I've noticed, you know, even with like stretching, we're doing some type of stretch and they're holding their breath the whole time, you know, that kind of defeats the purpose of what we're right. most likely trying to accomplish. And um, I like the idea of if, if you have trouble breathing in a position, assuming you're not doing just something crazy, um, but there's a, a reason you're having trouble breathing it and you kind of find that uncomfortable position mm -hmm. and then just practice, practice breathing, that seems to just do wonders for people. It will... Almost 100% of the time, when I talk to people about utilizing it as a tool for stress reduction, I call it like a five-breath reset. You know, I don't care if you're sitting at your desk and you're feeling the pressure of work uh, deadlines. I don't care if you're out in, you know, in the environment and you're dealing with heavy traffic that's stressing you out. Take a nice cleansing breath in through your nose. I tell people whenever you possibly can, always breathe in through your nose. It warms, it moistens, it filters, it mixes with nitric oxide, which helps to kind of act as a, as a body homeostasis regulator. Good stuff when you inhale through your nose. Blow out through your mouth. Sometimes I'll have people do just nasal breathing in and out through their nose. That's great as well. But as they exhale, I just say blow out a whole bunch of air. Pause in whatever position you're in. Hold three, five, eight, ten seconds in that exhaled state. Slowly re-inhale in whatever position you're in. Blow out a little bit more the second time. And I have them repeat that about five times in a row, finishing with a nice inhale, letting the letting the area expand, letting the air expand areas that previously were not expanding before, usually areas of the back, usually areas of one side or the other that need a little bit more attention in the in the rib cage. And then Almost always they'll say, yeah, just it just like really relaxes me. Like my head's a little clearer, my my body's a little bit more relaxed. I just feel like I can kind of handle things then. Fifty percent of the air we take in is used by our brain. So if we're getting cloudy in the brain, it certainly could be as a result of the fact that our body's not having good air exchange. Yeah, and, and uh, I can't remember if I, I talked to you about after uh, we you came out here, but um, I remember my back was not, you know, maybe a little tweaked. It was just something off. I was tight, whatever it was, probably, you know, doing something I shouldn't have been doing. Um, <laughs> but I remember just doing the breathing exercises and that's, you know, what we were focusing on that the incredibly noticeable difference afterwards. And it could have just been one, maybe I was getting in a better, better position, better alignment um, or, or maybe just that, that, like you said, that, that tool for relaxation where maybe just how I'm sitting or stress or whatever it was, I just had right. some tension there. And I finally, you know, I did, didn't have to stretch, you know, necessarily. It was just mm -hmm. getting good breath work in there. And I felt dramatically different. And I just, you know, I was sold right there with, okay, I need to pay really close attention to this. Great. Well, like we talked about a little bit when I was there, Mike, you know, our, our baseline of low-level stress that our body and our brain is dealing with all day long has crept up little by little so much insidiously that we don't even know it's happening. 
you know, we just think about our lives and our schedules and our work responsibilities and even the things that are fun and enjoyable, which create a busy schedule, all create some degree of low-level stress to our body. You get in your car and you deal with traffic. You get to work, you've got responsibilities. You've got uh, you know, dynamics in family or friends or work or coworkers and stuff like that that sometimes always isn't optimal. And so then your body is just constantly trying to adapt to those low-level stressors. And that begins to kind of switch your brain into a little bit more of like a defense mode. You start getting into that little bit more of that sympathetic, like, okay, now I'm kind of on and protective and defensive throughout my daytime, which will then absolutely change your breathing pattern. And it will be able to get into that little more pressurized, uh, inhaled, uh, tightened state because it's in this constant low-level state of stress. When we work on the body's ability to get a little bit more air movement more optimally, like you felt with your body relaxing, the brain can chill. The nervous system can relax a little bit. We're pumping our fluids and our gases much more effectively through our body instead of having them be just in survival mode. We're able to have it be a much more optimal degree of movement that the body's going to really appreciate and respond well to. Yeah, yeah. So um, I want to get into a little bit uh, more on movement with the the breathing that you've already actually started to touch on. But uh, talking about posture, and I know you don't really like that word, uh, so let's let's start there. So what? That's okay. Yeah. What? What do you have against posture? <laughs> yeah. Well, you remember my little spiel out there. I mean, one of the things that I joke about with people is that posture is a word that we made up to describe something that we made up to optimize something <laughs> that we made up. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like we look at posture as this. You know, this rigid, fixed position that we're supposed to be in to combat gravity's pull downward. So we've oversimplified this process of what this word has become. And because it denotes an image of people's minds, the reason I don't like it is because it's kind of like the word, you know, core. People automatically think that, you know, core means a certain thing, like, oh, I got a weak core or things like that, that I just don't think are, are creating optimal understanding about people's uh, awareness of what's, what's really true with it. So to me, I like to look at kind of postural positioning, mm-hmm. or I like to look at it as positioning during the daytime. A, a more erect, I'll just say rigid or upright position, and the way that people continue to teach it, and the way you see it in the media, and the way that you read it in, in magazines, and even ergonomic specialists treat, treat it, is to say you want these vertical positions, you want your shoulder blades back, you want to be able to maintain this nice erect position, bring your chin back, t- you know, all these rigid positions that won't allow your rib cage to work p- properly, period. It can't. If you go to reach your arm forward to do anything in that position, you've now uh, changed the mechanics of your rib cage so that it can't rotate how it's supposed to. Two, you can't breathe properly in that position. You can't. You will survive. You will breathe. It's not a problem. But your body is not in an optimal, whatever word you want to call that rib cage thorax position supposed to be, egg-shaped, rounded uh, position that allows the lungs to expand circumferentially allows that round diaphragm in the middle of that thorax to be able to open up and descend up and down like that upside down parachute position that allows that pelvic floor and all the abdominal muscles to be able to kind of stabilize that midsection for movement to occur. So I tell people optimal positioning for me is a position where if you're sitting, you should be able to feel your ability to be able to inhale and have your whole rib cage, and I'll say right around the level of the sternum or just below, be able to expand in all directions. So you should feel it be able to move out all the way. As you exhale, you should be able to maintain that position. And as you blow out just a little bit more air, you'll feel your deep abdominals kick in. 
And if you play with your shoulder blade position, not much, but just a little bit, you'll be able to get a little bit of shoulder blade muscle activity as well too. Now you've got abdominals on the front holding a nice position and you got shoulder blade muscles on the back holding a nice position instead of your chest muscles and your low back muscles holding you up, which is what a lot of things really advocate. The analogy I tell people is that sitting, standing, and walking shouldn't be nearly as much work as we're making it. <laughs> it really should be more relaxed. Some people even come in and they say, I've been practicing that slouching you've been having me doing. And I'm like, yeah, it's not slouching. It's just relaxed positioning mm -hmm. so that ribs can rotate, so that pelvises can rotate, so that you can have optimal air exchange happen throughout your body throughout your daytime. And you'll need to do, as I mentioned, that five breath reset periodically to kind of rein things back in because, you know, life will take over periodically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's funny you, you mentioned that slouching and because um, you actually w worked with one of my clients that I was having a little bit of trouble with uh, who's in, in some pain and, and definitely having some neck uh, and breathing issues. And when you showed him some of these movement or, or positioning, he was like, and you said, you told him that you are now in a, a good alignment. And he's like, no, I'm not. <laughs> And, right. and then you had other people who were watching confirm that, yes, you were in good position. He's like, no, I'm not. And yeah. he just didn't believe because he felt so different and so uncomfortable. But that's probably the point, too, because if you are having issues, you're probably in a bad position and you need to get a little uncomfortable in this new position. You got it. Yeah. Once that when they're able to get into that position, it's novel. It's new to them. So it's going to feel weird, in particular with what they're used to. In particular, the system's really toned and jacked up. Number two, it's creating variability. I want the system to be able to have options. And when you're able to do that, your body can move and rotate periodically. And if, if I have if the listeners right now, if they're sitting, if they just sit up in their chair and they sit straight with what they would consider to be good posture, whatever they perceive that is. And if they take their right or left hand and reach across their body and feel their body rotate, just make a note of where they feel their body rotate. And what I tell people is, is do you feel how your low back muscles are just a little bit active and make a note of what it feels like in terms of your abdominals or your rib cage movement. Now just exhale and drop your ribs on the front just a little bit. And now rotate and exhale across your body. And what you'll find is you'll feel your obliques work and you'll feel your kind of your ribs rotate a little bit. Those intercostal muscles are a little bit more mobile now. You won't feel your low back being strained as much because your pelvis can now rotate. And the load of rotation is now distributed more through a rib cage and a pelvis than being fixed with a pelvis and a rib cage that now you have to turn through a spine, which we don't want to be doing. So that relaxed position does feel new. But I tell people, do that little reach test as well. Do you feel like you can exhale? And do you feel those obliques rotating your rib cage? Because that's what's supposed to be rotating your rib cage. Yeah. That creates a neutral spine, believe it or not. Not a flexed spine, a neutral spine. It, yeah, and exactly what I was, I was going to say is, um, and this might bother some people hearing this, whether it, because they probably have heard that whole back and down posture. And I, I'm 100% mm -hmm. guilty of this, where... That's just, you know, what we were taught to do, and, and we're trying to get you in better position. And as you show, yeah, you're getting the shoulders back, but when you look down the chain, what actually happens at the lumbar spine? And it's something that was one of the biggest aha moments that I had after leaving this, where now I see it everywhere. And the more mm -hmm. I tell people to try and fix their posture, the more their backs are starting to get involved. And it's, it, it's just a, an amazing thing that when you start seeing that, you really do see it everywhere. Yep. The three things we our body uses the most to, for, for positional control, if you would, is position, pressure, and muscle tone, okay? 
So if I were to be really rigid and upright like those good posture positions, my position is allowing me to fight gravity. Well, it's not optimal because it's kind of locked out. If I'm over-inhaled, if I'm over-pressurized in my system, which, you know, not everybody, but certainly a lot of people are, well, that has creates a sense of stability because that pressure will create that sense of control. The third is muscle tone. So if I really engage a lot of muscles, I'm going to feel stable because I've got a lot of muscle activity. But to be able to then function in those three over-posturized, over, over over-pressurized, and then over-tonic state, our body can't sustain it. It's unsustainable. And then we go to bed or we go to kind of rest or we feel tight and we go to stretch and these muscles just can't let go because our nervous system's like, no, 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 no. I got way too much other things going on for me to allow you to be able to do that properly. And again, that, that, that breathing sequence or, you know, any of the things that we've, we've discussed previously do a really nice job of reining all that stuff back in so the body can then be able to move freer, find the right muscles you're looking for to be able to sustain a good position and modify your pressure so your system's not feeling quite so jacked up. Yeah, and uh, I want you mentioned pull-ups before, and the, yeah. this is one of the first things that I, I really thought would be applicable to a lot of our listeners because if, if you're training for a lot of these races, you need a lot of upper body str- uh, strength and need those monkey bars and things like that. And you showed us uh, some video of a client working on pull-ups, and I, I guarantee probably 90% of the people listening to this will fall into that first video that you showed us <laughs> where they're in that exactly like you just talked about that overtonus overpressurized they're stuck inhaling or probably even holding their breath because pull-ups are hard exercise and you want to get that false sense of stability by increasing that pressure and then you just see people kind of lean back stick their rib cage out and then reach their chest to the bar and if you look right at that that lower back you just see an incredibly arched spine there correct there's a lot of they're using a lot of latissimus dorsi to lift themselves up mm-hmm. that is a very massive muscle that's advantageously positioned to be able to create a pull-up. And I'm not saying I don't want lats working. I totally want lats working. But I don't want to have lats running the show. Because as soon as lats run the show, they're going to pull on the front of the balls and the humeral head, rotate them forward, and as they yank on those humeral heads, they're going to pull that thorax from the back or the rib cage from the back forward. And then that will lift them right up. Absolutely. Now they have no help from the abdominal wall on the front. They have no help of the deep pelvic muscles. Yes, pelvic muscles should be helping with a pull-up. To be able to allow that to happen, I said, again, I'll say in my mind, optimally. Once they're able to kind of get into that position where they're hanging on, and then they kind of take a, they, they, even if they're just hanging in that position unsupported, and then they inhale, I tell people, just focus on inhaling into your back. Blow out a bunch of air out of your front. And as they exhale and blow those ribs down on the front, now they've got abdominal position to be able to optimize control and to, I'm not going to get all fancy with my words, but to oppose the next inhale of the diaphragm, wanting to extend them, meaning as they blow that air out, the abdominals are now tightened, the deep ones holding that rib cage down. So when they go to inhale, the diaphragm can descend properly right in the middle of that rib cage and not pull them back again. And then as they exhale again, that's when they pull up. Now they've got abs, they've got scapular muscles, they've got some lats, absolutely. They've got a pelvis right underneath them to optimize that position. For and I'm going into this in detail because this carries over to a lot of other activities as well too. Yeah, to yeah. be able to get that, set that thorax and that rib cage in the right position for that pull up that we talked about. Or like monkey bars, like I think we'll talk about, or even push-ups, or any of those types of activities. 
Yeah, and, and I think it'll bother people when they start doing some of that because they probably are going to get a little bit weaker at first because they're doing it differently. And again, it's that un uncomfortable position. But I think it's something that they'll just see dramatic improvements and they're going to feel way better. And their back, lower back isn't going to hurt and all these other weird things aren't going to develop because they're got in a better it. position as they do it. Um, Absolutely. But let's, uh, so let's move on to monkey bars because that's something that a lot of people struggle with. And not only do they struggle with, but even if they can get through it, they hurt themselves very often on this exercise, um, typically their, their shoulder. Um, so again, you showed a video on, on some really cool monkey, monkey bar drills. And I, I just wanted you to share a little bit about that. Yeah. So if you, the best example I can get, and people may not be able to create this picture in their head, but when you watch a child on monkey bars, they swing, right? They hang on and they grab that bar and they let their body swing and they let all that muscle activity around that whole upper quarter, meaning around the ball and socket joint, around the shoulder blade, around the rib cage on that side to help rotate their body from one side to the other. They're getting distraction of the of the that quarter as their body is being pulled away from that bar, but their hand is holding on to it. So that creates a lot of um, what I'll call force couples, meaning all the muscles around that area are doing their job holding them in place. They're not thinking about it. They're not trying to muscle their way through it. They're letting the mechanics of the movement do its job. They're young, they're small, they're light. It's very different than an adult, I get that. But that is how a monkey bar is optimally done. As we get a little older, we're used to trying to muscle through these things, much like the pull-ups that we talked about. We're gonna kind of haul in whatever we possibly can to be able to get the 10 reps done or to get from one side of the monkey bars to the other. But what I like people to do is, as they kind of hang on that bar, as that body goes from one bar to the other, I tell them, I want those ribs to pull underneath you. So I want them to feel like their front rib cage is kind of down on the front. You're not pulling yourself from one bar to the other. You're swinging from one bar to the other. You almost feel like your ribs are rotating down underneath them as they go from one bar to the other bar. It's almost like a little bit of a tuck that that rib cage goes to on the front. You can see me doing my dance with my hands here, right, Mike? <laughs> um, that the body goes through as they go from that transition from one bar to the other, letting that, that hang and that distraction take place that allows all those muscles to be coordinated to allow the movement from happen to one to the other. Now, if you've got someone who's got a hypermobile shoulder, they've had previous surgery, you know, they've had some trauma to their shoulder, they've got a labral tear, you know, if they've got pathology or issues going on with their shoulder, then you know what, that's probably not gonna be the best activity for them, no matter how properly I'm describing it to them. But an unproblematic shoulder that has the appropriate mechanics and, and range of motion, that's what they're looking for, is let that swing occur. Let just enough muscles happen around that whole upper core, allow the body smoothly swing from one side to the other. And again, as usual, keeping the air moving. That's the analogy I tell people all the time. Just keep that air moving, and that's going to help them a whole bunch be able to be more successful with it, including that pegboard of yours that you have at your facility. Yeah, and that is a tough one. That's a tough one. <laughs> awesome. I know we're, we're running out of time, but I wanted to talk about one last thing before, before you go, and that is running because, hey, we're, we're talking about OCR racing, and you have to run you know, maybe uh, three miles or a marathon, just depending on, on the distance that you're signing up for. So it helps if you're an efficient runner. And again, you showed some awesome videos that again, it just it clicked when I saw what, what to look for basically. And I mm -hmm. want to talk uh, 
at least about one thing you mentioned, and that's your arms running backwards. And I know that sounds funny, but as soon as you said that and I saw the video, I knew exactly what you were talking about. So I just want to see if you could do your best to uh, kind of explain that, um, that idea. Sure. Um, one of the more common uh, uh, poor running mechanical things that I see people do, and frankly is often overlooked and not coached, is, is the arm position and arm swing. And I'm not talking about a rigid arm swing like you would for a sprinter doing trying to work on really high speed stuff, but I'm talking about people like you mentioned who are doing more uh, long, long distance running. When people are running and your legs are rotating underneath you, the pelvis is rotating side to side. I know it sounds like common sense, but I just want to kind of kind of build it from the ground up. So as that pelvis is rotating side to side and your legs are going through that range of motion forward and back, so sagittal plane, okay? There's a lot of other movements that are happening, but it's generally a sagittal plane movement going forward. And working on your body's ability to kind of get that kick with your legs behind you a little bit, because as you know, a lot of runners are real shufflers. They're not able to get much kick. So as that happens, I want to have a rib cage above it countering that pelvic rotation so that when my left leg is striding forward and my right leg is striding back, I want to have my right arm striding forward and my left arm swinging back to some degree. That allows my rib cage to offset the rotation of my pelvis. It allows my arms to stay in the proper position, propelling me forward versus what you'll see a lot of people do, which is either A, their elbows are swinging around side to side. So they're rotating their body side to side above while their legs are going forward and back down below. So you have two different planes of motion taking place. Or two, like we, like we showed with that video, arms going back. People with a little bit too much arch or too little bit too much of an upright position when they're running and their elbows are pulling back as they run versus them thinking about their hands lightly running forward or swinging into a forward position, which allows that rib cage on the front to be able to rotate effectively and do all the stuff we talked about earlier on, which is, again, optimize that abdominal position and that rib cage rotation, which going back to what we started with is all about airflow. When those arms are going back and that back is extending or arching and you're getting too vertical, you have now lost the capacity of that rib cage to optimally open up for optimal air exchange and muscle activity to occur. When those arms are more relaxed and swinging a little bit more towards the front and that rib cage in the front is just a little bit more down, your body will allow the movement to occur through the rib cage more and therefore diaphragm mechanics and abdominal position is gonna be much better set up to do the job you want it to be able to do. And as I alluded to earlier on in the podcast as well, you know, a two stride inhale, a three stride exhale or something like that is a nice little thing I have people do for a minute or two every now and then during a run to kind of rein in what most people do, which is more of like a two to two or three to three, you know, two stride inhale, two stride exhale, which really keeps that consistent, more um, inhaled state going. I like to kind of rein that in periodically by, by, by countering it with a little bit of an offset exhale position. Yeah, and it's amazing when you, if, if you are guilty of doing some of these things, that you you realize how how much you're working against yourself. And when you finally get it, it running becomes a little bit easier, become more efficient, and you're using a little bit less energy. And, and the whole breathing aspect of it gets a little bit easier because you don't feel like you're you're expending as much energy to do your runs. 
Yeah. And I love, I love that you mentioned that because that's something I encourage the listeners to do when you're out for your next run or you're in a place where you see a lot of runners, watch elbows that are going back a lot and never even coming close to the plane of the body and look at it as if they're running backwards. Mm-hmm. And you'll see kind of what it is that we were talking about with the videos. And sometimes people just kind of grown to accept certain things related to, to what they perceive as norms. But it's like, oh, wait, if you look at it from a different lens, like, yeah, I could see how that could be a problem. Yeah, yeah. And real quickly on that note, if I may, too, that's where some of the shoe and the foot and the, the, the foot strike component kind of plays in it as well. If I can go here real quickly. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a lot of the research talks about, you know, what's better. Is it better to be a heel striker or a midfoot striker or a forefoot striker? And what what you don't see much of is that it really is much less about that. And it's much more about what's your body position and your rotation happening further up. A properly positioned mechanics with running. If you look at the runners that are really high-level runners, their legs are going through this rotation that 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 as the leg goes out into stride, the the knee is starting to bend and it's starting to come underneath them at strike. That allows a rear foot, midfoot, forefoot strike at the same time. And I said that quickly on purpose <laughs> because it's kind of all the same thing you're looking for. I don't want a hard heel strike. So I don't want to have someone when that leg's going out to be able to, just before it hits the ground, I don't want the knee extending as it hits the ground. I want the knee bending as it hits the ground, like it's coming underneath them. I want that pelvis positioned over on top of that leg so that it can come underneath them as they strike. So it's like a wheel that's spinning underneath them versus a wheel that kind of keeps hitting the front of this little nub that keeps slowing them down during that process. So it's really less about what part of the foot is striking and more about further up what's happening further up. And all those things I alluded to before about rib position and arm swing and all the other stuff allows the body to be able to get to that position that allows that optimal strike. Awesome. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, so I, I think our listeners have a ton to digest and, and hopefully start implementing yeah. in their training. Uh, if it's all right with you, um, in the show notes for this episode, I'd love to. Uh, your Instagram um, and Facebook page is, is a wealth of, of, of some of these great videos. Uh, I'd love to put some of them on there if that's okay with you to show, you know, kind of what we're talking about. Oh, of course. You bet. Yeah. Thanks very much. Yeah. Uh, at M J M A T C is, is my Twitter and Instagram and my webpage, which just went up like two weeks ago, uh, is M J M A T C.com. So kind of, kind of consistent letters there. So, (laughs) and I'll, I'll put all that in the show notes. So if any of our listeners want to check out your website, learn more about you, what, what you do and, and get a little bit more in detail with some of this stuff. Cause I know, uh, 20 or 30 minutes is nowhere near enough time, but hopefully people got at least a taste of, of some of the cool things that they can be implementing in their, in their program. Um, but I'll definitely put a couple videos. Um, you showed us a great warm up routine talking about some of that rib, rib movement, breathing with the lunging forward, backward, right. laterally, all, all the different cool stuff. So I'll, I'll be sure to include that in there, but uh, thank you right. so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Oh, Mike, it was an honor. Really fun to talk to you and good to see you again. Awesome. You too. All right, guys, that's going to do it for episode 37 of the OCR Underground Show. Don't forget to check out the show notes at ocrunderground.com slash episode dash 37 to check out any links mentioned in the show in the show as well as a couple of videos that I put up there to help see some of the exercises that we were talking about uh, during this episode. And I do want to give a big thanks to Coach Brad Sims for his awesome recap with the Goliathon race and as well as Michael Mullen for really interesting discussion on breathing and posture and uh, improving your pull-ups, monkey bars, running, uh, really some great stuff in there. 
Uh, and as I mentioned, I am looking for some beta testers for our new 90-day program to help train for the Big Bear Beast and or Sprint. And breathing is going to be a big part of this training system. So if you find this stuff interesting and want to learn on ways to improve your breathing uh, to maximize your performance, you can head on over to the website. Again, it's ocrunderground.com slash big dash bear. And you can apply to be one of the 10 beta testers for the program. Uh, and as usual, if you found anything helpful in this show, please subscribe to the show notes so you automatically get any updates that, uh, when I send them out, as well as give us a review. I'd love to have a, a five star or whatever you think we deserve and let us know how we're doing. Uh, but until next time, uh, keep training hard, keep training smart, and we'll see you soon.